Hello and welcome to this new edition of the American Academy of Orofacial Pain Educational Podcast. My name is Isabel Moreno Hay and I'm the Program Director at the Orofacial Pain Center at the University of Kentucky. Today, I have the honor to introduce the host of our podcast, Dr. Ian Boguero. He is a clinical psychologist and he's the Director of Psychological Services and director as well of research at the University of Kentucky or a facial pain clinic. I had invited Dr. Boguero to host today's interview with Dr. Flavia Capos, who is a postdoctoral fellow at the Pediatric Pain and Sleep Innovation Lab at Seattle Children's Research Institute. She is a pain epidemiologist and a diplomat of the American Board for Facial Pain. Dr. Capos completed her DDS training at the University of Sao Paulo School of Dentistry and her master's and orofacial pain residency at the University of Minnesota School of Dentistry. She earned her PhD in epidemiology at the University of Washington School of Public Health, where she was an NIH-NIDCR R90 trainee focused on the social determinants of chronic pain in the United States. Currently, her research is dedicated to life course and intergenerational mechanisms of pain inequities. In today's discussion, Dr. Boguero and Dr. Kappels will be talking about the impact that social determinants of health may have in orofacial pain. I hope that you will enjoy their discussion. Thank you for listening. So as Dr. Moreno mentioned in her introduction, a lot of your work focuses on social determinants of health and pain. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in this line of work? Yeah, thank you so much for the invitation. I'm really excited to be here. Um, I um, got interested in this field um, in part because of things that I noticed in the clinic as an orofacial pain uh, practitioner. I, uh, when I was doing my residency and uh, my master's, I, uh, some of the questions that um, made me interested were uh, why certain patients get better and cer certain patients don't, or it takes more work or it takes longer for them to get better. And uh, I noticed that a lot of times the, the things that would uh, get in the way uh, of them engaging with treatment or um, being able to address the contributors to their pain were things that were in their, in their social context. So things that were happening in their lives uh, outside of the clinic uh, and that were either creating sources of stress or that were barriers for them to uh, do the things that we were working with them um, on, on changing um, so that they could get better. Uh, and then uh, this was, you know, during my training as a clinician. And later on, when uh, I started my PhD in epidemiology, I was exposed to this whole other universe of, of literature uh, on the social determinants of health. And I, I, I started to gain some of the language and understanding of the terms um, that had been quite well developed outside of 
dentistry. So thinking about how the social environment uh, shapes health in a broader way. And so I, I really wanted to kind of bridge those two fields to get bring both the theories and also the methods um, so that we could understand how the social context affects uh, orofacial pain and, and chronic pain more broadly. So, so when you say the social context, and you mentioned earlier some of the barriers that you were seeing in clinic, for, for those of us who are not familiar with this idea of social determinants of health, what kind of barriers or social contexts were you seeing a lot in clinic? Yeah, so I think um, the the social determinants of health uh, generally are things that um, influence someone's um, access to resources, uh, and they they are gonna change a little bit depending on the context. So, uh, on the context, I mean like geographic and and social and political different places may have different social determinants of health that are more prominent than others but they are um, all of the things that uh, can shape someone's health that are generally outside of the formal medical context so it can go all the way from like access to clean water and energy and uh, nutritious food and transportation uh, and education and uh, legal systems that are that are just uh, and so a lot of the things that create you know access to power in some ways and resources um, that shape the living conditions in which we are born and we grow and we play and work and um, and age. So, so that's really interesting because usually, at least when I think of pain, I think of pain as something being very individual. In other words, there's something about a person that influences how they're experiencing pain. But if I'm understanding what you're saying correctly, you're saying that there's things outside of the person, things in the environment and in the social structure that actually might play a big role in how people are experiencing their, their pain also. Is, 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 am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, we, as people, don't live in a vacuum, so I, I try to use that, that as kind of a catchphrase to remind us that um, all of the experiences that we have, even though they may be very personal, very individual, uh, they are shaped by our surroundings, our, our environment all the time, both like in the moment that something is happening, uh, but also based on our previous personal history, things that happened to us in the past. And that can also go uh, way back in time, you know, from the environment that shaped uh, our ancestors and also like way back in an evolutionary scale of time about how um, pain came about as, as a mechanism to communicate uh, between people and also uh, to, to make it more advantageous, you know, as, as a society um, so that we could signal to each other that we needed help or that, you know, um, 
as as an alarm for uh, threats to our integrity. Uh, pain has been very efficient um, from that evolutionary perspective. But thinking more in in our daily uh, lives, we we definitely are shaped by you know the the social circumstances that um, can make uh, pain better or worse depending on the how much that social context is going to make pain uh, more threatening, for example. And I want to make a quick note also on the term uh, social determinants of health, uh, because they've been used a lot. And I think that language is pretty dynamic. So there's kind of a movement that I've heard more recently uh, to not use the word determinants, uh, because it sounds a little too deterministic. So as if, you know, if, you're, if you have a certain uh, type of social environment, then for sure you're going to have negative health outcomes or you're going to have pain or worse pain. And so um, some, some of the people who are proposing to not use that term, they uh, think that it may sound like uh, there's no way to change that. Uh, but... I am still fairly comfortable using that term. Uh, I like it and I think it um, conveys a different aspect that I find important, which is to show that uh, the social context and the social environment, uh, they can truly be the, uh, one of the causes of health, um, good or poor health, depending on you know, how that social environment is. Um, which is in some ways different from a more biomedical paradigm that uh, only looks at the more the more physical aspects of health. Um, and in those in that context, the social aspects were generally uh, framed as something that was just uh, like a modulator of biology. Um, as opposed to being a cause on its own. So I, um, in the school of thought that I generally um, kind of think most closely with um, is that the, the social context is just as much a, of a cause of pain and health as the psychological and biological aspects. And, the, and we can talk more about that as we move along the conversation. So this idea that pain is, in addition to being a psychological and a physiological thing, is also a, a social phenomenon, is really interesting. And I'm wondering if you think of all pain being equally social, or for example, is chronic orofacial pain as social as, for let's say, acute pain? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um I don't think we have like a ton of data to support, you know, to say which pains are more social than others. Um, the, as you said, you know, the idea that pain includes a social component is not new at all. You know, like uh, we're building on to work that has been uh, disseminated for um, centuries, depending on how you define it. But uh, from the biopsychosocial model that has been around since at least like the 60s, 70s, 80s, um, then, you know, that, that social component has been talked about. Um, 
I think some of the earlier reports were maybe uh, related to acute pain. Uh, so if you think about, for example, I think there were some reports of um, people that had been injured in combat, for example, uh, versus people who had a similar uh, type of injury, but was in like an accident not related to war uh, or like a great, a bigger like uh, social conflict. And that the, the pain that people experience and also the, the kind of progression after the pain uh, was very different depending on, on that social context. Um, and I think, yeah, like we, we maybe can think of situations in our own lives where, um, where we, we got injured and we didn't even notice because we were in a, doing something that was very important. Uh, so in, a, in the acute pain setting that I think is, has been observed for a long time. And uh, thinking about uh, chronic pain, I think that is the bigger focus of my work uh, as, you know, as a clinician and, and pain epidemiologist, uh, because chronic pain has a very large uh, societal impact. And uh, some, some of my dissertation work, for example, uh, I was looking at um, differences in prevalence of high-impact chronic pain, uh, which was defined as pain on more than half of the days for at least six months uh, with an impact on daily activities. So it's pretty impactful pain. Uh, and that could be, from that definition, it could be in any part of the body. Um, and I was looking at, you know, the prevalence of high-impact chronic pain, for example, by different levels of um, household income. Uh, and adults in the United States uh, that have lower income uh, had, have a much higher prevalence of high-impact chronic pain. And then I was, as, as, a, as a dentist and our facial pain practitioner, I was interested in breaking it down by uh, pain in different locations to see uh, if some of them had a stronger sort of effect of that uh, social inequity by income. Uh, and what I found was that actually um, we had measures of uh, pain in different locations, I think in, in five or six different locations, and they all had somewhat similar um, uh, magnitude of that association with a household income. Uh, what explained some of that was the fact that people who had high-impact chronic pain had a very high level of comorbidity between pains in different sites. So when we were looking at pains in different sites for people with high impact chronic pain, it was almost like we couldn't separate pain by location because people who had high impact and had one pain were also much more likely to have pain in other uh, body sites. So they had um, multiple chronic overlapping uh, pain conditions, if if you would, even though it wasn't measured in that particular way. So in short, uh, to, to your point, um, it is, we know that chronic pain has uh, likely a, a, a big influence of the social context. And because um, 
the social context influences pain through kind of general or more central mechanisms to make people more sensitive to pain, it probably doesn't make uh, that much of a difference if where the pain is felt in the body. Although you could make a case, um, again, as our, our bias as dentists, we know that uh, the face is really strongly related to how we communicate with people and how our sense of identity is. So we can see how those things would uh, make pain in the face impactful for our relationships and our social uh, engagement. So uh, there's also that aspect that makes uh, this this whole topic more relevant for orofacial pain specifically. So one of one of the things that you found, if I'm understanding it correctly, is that people from low socioeconomic status had high, higher prevalence of high impact pain. Um, mm -hmm. But I want to ask a, a slightly, well, I think it's a slightly different question, which is if you had two people from two different socioeconomic statuses and they had the same pain, right? Not, not different pain, but the same pain. Do you think that that pain would be more impactful in someone with a lower SES because it disrupts more things. Like they might not have the resources to take the time off work to rest and get, you know, could the pain be more impactful because of the social factors that are present? Yeah, I, I think you're definitely on the right track. Um, we're, we're in the process of refining the research to answer those questions, but we do see that um, for people that report, for example, the same intensity of pain, people that are uh, in uh, lower social positions of defined in many different ways, but definitely where there's more research is socioeconomic position. Um, then um, we know that pain impact is also greater um, for those who are in those um, uh, either marginalized or less resourced positions. And uh, I, I think that in some ways we, we're still figuring out the direction of that relationship. So we uh, there's a chance that uh, some of this difference is because um, those social conditions that um, may make people more likely to experience higher impact um, and also could be the opposite direction, which is um, pain that is more impactful uh, can impact someone's ability to work and um maintain or, or achieve different levels of socioeconomic position. Um, and so a lot of the data that we have uh, so far has been cross-sectional, so we can't really um, tease those two directions apart, but it's probably a combination of both. Um, and we, we do know that um, having resources to um, address acute pain and chronic pain and have the ability to engage with treatment and have time and resources to 
make changes in lifestyle, for example, uh, can depend on, on money. <laughs> and so it would be understandable uh, that those could be barriers for having pain that is more manageable or, or less impactful. So one of the implications, at least as I think of it, of, of your line of work, is that if we were to somehow be able to change the social environment or to change the resources, that then we could also potentially impact people's pain. Is there any evidence or has anyone done these um, kind of bigger picture interventions at the you know, city, state, country level? To, to show how different resources and different policies actually influence uh, chronic pain in those regions? Uh, yeah, so I love that question. So one of my uh, personal and professional missions is to um, help the narrative about pain and social determinants of health uh, move towards our, our understanding that these things can be changed, they can be modified. Um, and, and yeah, like a very uh, compelling argument for that uh, new narrative would be to show how when you change the social environment, how does pain change um, as a consequence? And that's on my... Um, dream study list. I would uh, love to do something very specific to pain. And I think that, um, you know, I have a couple of things that are in planning phase that can be foundations for that type of question. But one of the best examples in the literature that is um, analogous to, to that type of question um, is in, in the mental health literature that uh, there's a very famous study uh, called Moving to Opportunity. Um, and it was, um, I'm trying to remember if it was fully uh, randomized or if it was like semi-experimental, but it was a very strong design. Um, and I, I want to say it was randomized. Um, so people had the opportunity to um, use a voucher uh, to move to a neighborhood um, where it was a, a more resourced neighborhood. And uh, in that study, they showed uh, positive impacts on, um, on depression symptoms uh, that I think were, that was kind of a, uh, a new breakthrough study because it was, uh, the, the design was strong enough that people could interpret those effects as being causal. Um, and also it was in some ways scalable or you could think about, you know, ways of that neighborhoods could be changed uh, or people could be relocated. There's, a, there, there's obvious downsides to that as well. You know, when, when someone moves from one place to the other, they may uh, lose some some of their social networks that were in their in their previous neighborhood. So there were definitely, you know, pros and cons. Uh, I would highly recommend uh, if if any of you out there are interested in uh, this type of social intervention and and understanding their impacts on health to to look this up. It's called moving to opportunity, 
And I think that uh, as we know about some of the mechanisms for um, how the social context may affect pain and how uh, mental health and pain are also very closely related, uh, we could argue that those same positive changes in the neighborhood that were helpful for depression may also be uh, helpful for pain. We're just uh, we just need to to prove that in um, in our research in the in the coming years and to use that research also to uh, support broader changes that um, as we know about the big cost that both to individuals and society uh, of chronic pain. I think uh, those could be, you know, some additional pushes that can go towards positive social changes. So, Flavia, I've heard you present at different conferences before, and they're always fascinating presentations. But in, in one of those presentations, I heard you say something which really, really stuck with me. Um, and, and I think what you said was something along the lines of, we, we actually know can tell more about people by knowing their zip code than we can than by knowing their genetic code. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so uh, so just uh, full disclosure here, I did not create uh, that, that phrase or that um, expression. So I... Um, I have tried to find the origin of like, where did that uh, come to be? And I couldn't find the exact source, but it has been going around for at least 10 years. Um, but it is very helpful to um, explain the, the concept. I guess in other words, it's kind of the trade-off between nature and nurture. So the zip code is representing the the social context or, you know, the, someone's neighborhood and the genetic code is representing their biological characteristics and, and how those two contribute to what we can know about one's health. And there, there have been different efforts to quantify, you know, uh, which, how much each of these sides of the coin, you know, the zip code or the genetic code, nature and nurture, how much they contribute to someone's health. And it, it is a little bit controversial, but we know that for a lot of chronic conditions, including pain, the, the, the neighborhood or the social context can tell us a lot. Um, as I, I think I alluded to earlier, we in, in the United States, for example, but this is definitely not uh, an exclusively uh, U.S. issue, we know that people that have lower socioeconomic position have a lot more high-impact chronic pain. And so that one person's zip code, it, it's obviously not the zip code itself that is um, making someone have more or less pain, but are all the things that come with that zip code and where can people live and, and how, how can they access different neighborhood and neighborhoods and, and resources to, for, uh, for example, go to different schools in different places and, you know, all, all of the things that may be different from one place to the other. And, and there have been some studies specifically looking at genetic contribution to, to chronic pain. And I thought 
there's an example that was very relevant for me. I think it was about uh, the, the risk of developing musculoskeletal pain after motor vehicle collision. And they, they were specifically interested in some uh, genetic vulnerabilities that people could have and that, you know, that's that I will say also genetics are not my expertise. So I pardon if my language is not so technically correct in this sense, but they, they basically saw that at any level of stress that was greater than minimal stress, uh, those genetic subvariants did not make a difference in their pain outcome after motor vehicle collision. So the stress kind of overrides uh, the genetic uh, predisposition, meaning that that context, you know, the, the zip code, if you will, was having a much bigger contribution to, to the pain outcomes. So I think that quote, you know, this, this idea of zip codes being important and also, you know, what, what you mentioned about the moving towards opportunity study that if people move, their mental health can change really highlights the fact that our, our neighborhoods and our very proximate social environment makes a big impact. Now, when I think of that, there's, you know, when I think of neighborhood differences, even within my own state, there's so many ways to describe a neighborhood. We could be thinking of like, do they have sidewalks or not? How close are they to a park? How close are they to healthcare resources, traffic, air quality, safety? There's so many characteristics that go into a neighborhood. When we look at all these characteristics, what are some of the characteristics of neighborhoods that put people more at risk for pain, adverse pain outcomes? Or on the other hand, what are some of the neighborhoods of characteristics that are more protective against adverse pain, pain outcomes? You put it really well there, you know, the variety of things that, that could have an impact. I think that we are asking the right questions. We don't yet know, you know, in detail which things uh, make the most difference, unfortunately. And it could be that, um, you know, they're all contributing in different ways and, and acting together. They are often kind of connected to each other, you know, like when, when certain changes happen to a neighborhood, they, there's kind of a cascade effect that, you know, can bring positive change or it can bring negative change. And a lot of those things are driven by, by shifts in kind of political and, and, and balances in power and, and money that happen in a lot of places that, you know, if there's more investment in a neighborhood, then there's going to be potentially more safety. And if there's uh, also uh, more more resources there, then the quality of education may be able to go up. So those things are interconnected. And this kind of speaks to uh, another concept that I think is really helpful when we're talking about social determinants of health, that is the idea of intersectionality, which means that we are not defined by a single aspect of our social position at any given time. So all of the aspects of our social identity and positions, they are with us all the time. So, for example, I'm not a woman one day and a Latina the next. 
I'm always <laughs> in the U.S. Actually, depending on where I am, I'm defined in a different way. And so we always embody all of our aspects of our social position at the same time. And we're influenced by these different things all at once. And I think going back to the idea of the neighborhood, there is value in trying to tease apart, you know, which are the ingredients that would have the biggest yield if we were to change them. That's what a lot of the research is trying to do. But also, I think our research is evolving in a way that it's uh, combining, you know, the, the, the effect of different aspects of the social context in ways that incorporate intersectionality. And I think that it represents our uh, lived experience in the world a little better than when we're trying to uh, slice things in, in different ways to uh, to find interventions. Maybe that uh, the way of slicing things in and wanting to see independent effects is influenced by um, a more biomedical way of thinking about research. And those are very helpful as well. I'm not like rejecting uh, that paradigm. I think that we just need to improve it. <laughs> So I think the way you defined intersectionality was really, really beautiful because you were talking about how we're all these different things simultaneously at any one point in time. But I want to ask about that one point in time piece because you mentioned earlier that when we look at the social environment, it's not just about any one point in time, but it's also about generations ago and even farther than that in our evolutionary past. And I know some of your work looks at these intergenerational effects and how things that happen maybe at different points in time are currently affecting our social environment. So I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about your work on these transgenerational or intergenerational effects. Yeah, thank you so much uh, for that question. So there, there are a couple of things related to the intergenerational effects the, the research in the area, for example, has, has documented that ch uh, children of parents with chronic pain have a higher risk of developing chronic pain than uh, children of, whose parents don't have chronic pain. And most of the, the research to date has focused on how um, social learning and kind of behavioral pathways could explain this transmission. But there's at least two other uh, mechanisms that are very interesting that uh, are social mechanisms that could contribute to this uh, intergenerational effect. Uh, one of them is through adverse conditions during childhood for the child that could be a result of the parent having chronic pain and specifically tying back to uh, the example that we've touched on a couple of times uh, about kind of uh, financial adversity and, and the stress that that can come, come with it. So the adverse childhood experiences that is a part of the literature that I think has been fairly well developed as well and could be one of the social links in addition to that behavioral piece. And the other part that could explain that 
there's also pretty novel and exciting research that is looking at it, that is looking at uh, epigenetic changes. So how uh, the parent and, and their stress uh, conditions and their social environment more broadly can uh, modify the way that their genetic code is expressed and transmitted to the next generation. And so that could be another aspect of it. And in my research, I was also looking at kind of the opposite direction. So as pain researchers, we most of the times we are looking at how certain exposures can make someone at higher or lower risk of developing chronic pain or the prognosis of chronic pain. But in a recent study that I'm, I've been working on, I was also looking at uh, how having chronic pain in earlier life, so specifically in adolescence, could impact uh, their later life socioeconomic position. So, for example, when we see in adults, we see that very strong relationship between uh, socioeconomic position and chronic pain, uh, where lower socioeconomic position is associated with more pain. And we are not seeing necessarily what led to that situation. So it could be some of the two directions that I briefly spoke about. So is the uh, socioeconomic position leading to higher risk of chronic pain and higher impact of pain, but also having chronic pain acting as a barrier to that socioeconomic uh, position later in life. And, and tying that back to uh, intergenerational effects, in this study, I was I defined the outcome as intergenerational social mobility, meaning how far can one go with their education relative to their parents? So can they achieve equal to or greater educational attainment than their parents? And does having chronic pain in adolescence make a difference for that intergenerational um, social mobility and education? And I was, I was very lucky to have access to this public data set called the Ad Health Study or uh, Adolescent to Adult Health, the National Longitudinal Study of Adolescent to Adult Health that followed up people over time, starting from a nationally representative sample of adolescents back in the 90s who were in 7th to 8th grade. And we knew whether they had chronic pain or not in that baseline. We also knew their parents' uh, educational attainment. And then they were followed up over time across decades until they were in their 30s and 40s where their education would have presumably kind of have stabilized. They reached their final educational attainment. And we, I, I asked the question of do adolescents with chronic pain have the same level of educational social mobility. And we're still, you know, refining the analysis a little bit. But at first glance, it looked like there was a difference. So specifically for women, so adolescent girls who have chronic pain had lower educational social mobility than adolescent girls without chronic pain uh, after adjusting for a variety of things. And that was also true specifically for people of non-Hispanic white uh, race ethnicity in the U.S. with chronic pain that had 
less educational social mobility than people of non-Hispanic white, white race ethnicity without chronic pain. I think that that has a lot of implications because part of what you said is that, you know, from generation to generation, there's also these epigenetic changes. But also when you think back at the whole neighborhood and zip code discussion we were having, a lot of what where you're born into depends on what your parents did, mm-hmm. right? And the, the, the social mobility of that your parents obtained, uh, you know, a lot of that is is luck and it determines the neighborhood you're born into. Mm-hmm. So it seems like that um, study is can be suggesting that there might be um, intergenerational effects that what you're doing now to, to treat your pain might influence some pain outcomes for your children or grandchildren potentially. And that would, that's really, really profound. Yeah, absolutely. And not only, not only pain, right. I think that's, that's the other kind of uh, rich part of this, of this field of social determinants of health that we often see how that social context also may explain a lot of the comorbidity patterns that we see uh, with other chronic diseases that people are, healthier or sicker depending on their environment so i i'm also interested in how these intergenerational effects can happen for different types of conditions so you know uh, mental health and chronic pain you know so definitely the impact of health on our social position later in life will shape the, the opportunities and conditions of of the next generation and so we could see chronic pain this link between chronic pain and poverty as kind of mutually reinforcing uh, across generations. But that also brings up uh, the potential opportunity to break those links and reverse that pattern. So having better social conditions and preventing pain in the next generation and also preventing a variety of other uh, adverse health outcomes that would come along as well. So you mentioned health, and it makes sense to me that your neighborhood would, you know, if you live in neighborhoods with less resources, you'd have less access to care and a lot more potentially stress. But what are some of the biological mechanisms by which social neighborhoods and social environments might get under the skin to influence pain or other health conditions? What are some of those biological mechanisms at play here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think maybe the the hallmark one is definitely stress, but that's pretty broad, you know, like at at the very micro level, I think that the the stress pathways would potentially make us or when that stress is repeated over time and it's under very little control of the person, we know that that can have an effect on that reactivity of the body and and kind of ability to buffer these new and repeated stress stimuli. And I would say I generally like to split those mechanisms through which the social context may influence pain in kind of three broad categories. And I'm borrowing from a model that, you know, is used outside of the pain world, but generally I like to think of them in social conditions that may increase the exposure to pain. So that would be, for example, 
environments that make it more likely for people to have accidents or injuries. Those could be all the way from like traffic injuries because the, there's no uh, appropriate signaling or pedestrian infrastructure. They could also be related to, for example, occupational injuries that people that are working in jobs with poor working conditions would be more exposed to. That could also be in the form of little access to treatment for that acute pain. For example, not being able to take a day off work because you don't have paid sick leave to treat an injury. And then that helps to kind of facilitate that chronification. So first category is more exposure to acute pain or more exposure to pain. The second big group is more vulnerability to uh, the transition from acute to chronic pain. And those are maybe the, the group of mechanisms that have been uh, studied the most. So they're more related to like how uh, the social context may shape someone's coping skills and emotional functioning and mental health and things that we know that are those like biological and psychosocial uh, and, and psychological uh, vulnerabilities to chronic pain but the the novel piece here is to think about not only the biological and psychological vulnerabilities but how they may be shaped by that social history from from in the in utero environment and childhood across um, the lifespan and then the third block of social mechanisms that can affect pain uh, would be sort of uh, how the social context influences the resources to prevent and manage pain. So that would be both material resources, but also social resources, like having support from our family members and coworkers and friends and how those social networks are able to uh, help us maintain a healthy lifestyle and also to to cope with the the stresses of life and to also help specifically with with pain and and the access and quality of healthcare of course uh, those are a couple of things that we um, as healthcare uh, professionals always think about but uh, those resources to prevent and manage pain I think we can think about how they're shaped by our social positions more broadly and things that facilitate those lifestyle changes that we often talk about in, in practice, but thinking about uh, how those in quote-unquote choices are shaped uh, by our social positions and the resources that are available to us. We've talked a lot about social resources and we've talked a lot about neighborhoods and different um, intergenerational effects and these big scale kind of overarching social questions that are at play here. And I want to ask one final question, which circles back to the very first thing you said, which was that you got into this line of research by really being in clinical practice and seeing how some of these things were playing out for your patients. So in light of that, I, I want to ask one final question, which takes it back down to the clinical level. 
a lot of our listeners are orofacial pain clinicians or orofacial pain dentists. And I want to say, I want to ask, what can an orofacial pain practitioner do in a in their everyday clinical practice in light of all this information that you've shared with us today? What can an orofacial pain practitioner do to develop a more informed clinical practice or to be more sensitive to these topics uh, when they see them playing out in their patients? Yeah, so the, those questions are super, super relevant. I think that we we need to know what, what to do next. And we definitely want to expand or, or really make our practice, I think, coherent with the words that we preach. And I think the, the biopsychosocial model of pain has been talked about for a long time. And uh, I think there's still room for us to incorporate a lot more of the social aspects into our practice and also what we do more broadly in in our lives. And I think, first of all, I would say that if you're working with patients with orofacial pain, uh, you may already be doing uh, some of this. And I, I think that's very key to ask the questions about things that are happening in the, the person's lives in terms of their relationships, for example, uh, their living conditions, their employment, and how, how can those things be potential barriers or, or facilitators also for them to engage in treatment and to address the things that are contributing to their pain. And that, that those are relatively basic things to do, but if, if they feel outside of your comfort zone, I would highly encourage you to try and get extra extra training in, in these things. And uh, a lot of, I think this is not part of our traditional uh, dental training, but they are absolutely core to the experience of pain and being able to treat the whole person and thinking also about the, the person not being in a vacuum thinking about what's around the person and, 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 and shaping how they go about their lives. And so uh, that I think those skills come from uh, interdisciplinary collaboration. I think that Dr. Boguero, of course, has uh, a ton of expertise in this area and as, as a, a pain psychologist. In the United States also, a lot of this work specifically with the social aspect of health comes from people who have training in social work. Um, this may be different in different countries and you know who deals with these different social needs. And it would be ideal that if you're obviously asking those questions, that you know what to do about uh, the answers and, and making them helpful and not only kind of bringing up difficult conversations without uh, necessarily being able to address them. So it's like we need to up our game in our in the way we discuss social things. And also uh, that would be kind of step one. So maybe bringing in people in your team to collaborate, to learn more about this. And the I think the second part of it is to understand that social inequities in pain are not going to be fixed in the clinic. And I think that's a, a really big a really big step that needs to happen 
for us to address the bigger picture issues that are kind of the root causes of these problems. And in many ways, I think historically, we've seen those uh, big picture problems, social problems as outside of our scope. But as uh, artificial pain practitioners and advocates, you know, you, you don't need to be a provider to engage in this effort. But as we learn more about how the social environment impacts pain and impacts health more broadly, we uh, need to use our trusted messenger voice because we often have uh, a lot of credibility with, with the public and with policymakers. We need to get that message out there that these inequities are happening. They're shaping both the risk and the prognosis of pain in our patients. They're shaping who actually gets to our clinic in the first place and maybe who is suffering with those problems without getting access to care. And those things are based on much more fundamental justice issues and distribution of resources that we, we can advocate for and we can talk to our colleagues, we can talk to our our, our representatives in the political system and it, it's going to take kind of a change in culture and the more we talk about it the better. I know that a lot of these topics are kind of uncomfortable to talk about and, and we may feel kind of helpless uh, but it, it takes talking about it to be able to understand how we may be able to change it. It's going to be a collective solution for a collective problem. So uh, let's not say, you know, within the walls of the clinic, but we will do everything we can in the clinic, but also uh, let's engage um, and uh, advocate for bigger changes. Thank you so, so much for answering all those questions. I think it's been such a wonderful conversation. And I think when we see patients, a lot of times patients come to us because they might have a problem with their jaw and we naturally tend to look at their jaw but we forget that this jaw is in a person in a social environment in the neighborhood in the state in the country and all those different levels of play might all all be influencing the pain that they're experiencing and how they're coping with it and i think that that's such a powerful reminder and you really opened i think my horizon on thinking of how all those different systems might be at play here. So that's really, um, thank you so much for doing that. And I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. Thank you for facilitating. Yes, it's it's been a pleasure. <laughs>